0: Happy Monday Liberty Kitty Cats and welcome back once again to the flagship Lions of Liberty podcast. Before we get into today's interview, I want to make sure you know about a special promotion we are doing for just a couple more days through the end of April. Anybody who joins the Lions of Liberty Pride are supporters on Patreon, anybody who joins at the 15 or higher per month level, will receive a free Tigers of Liberty t-shirt. This is our brand spanking new t-shirt. It is a parody of the Tiger King documentary. Of course, Brian recently interviewed Josh Dial, uh, Joe Exotic's Libertarian Party campaign manager on Electric Liberty Land. Be sure to check that out. But we now have an incredible uh, hilarious parody Tigers of Liberty t-shirt. You want to check it out over at lionsofliberty.store and if you join at 15 or higher, that's going to more than pay for the t-shirt itself. We're going to send you one for free. Of course, at that level, you also get a free Lions of Liberty taxation, is death mug, and you also get access to all our bonus audio, video content, live streams, and you get access to Howie Snowden's daily news links, which are just incredible. Once you, once you see how many how this guy uh, curates news, it's really an incredible thing to see, but you'll get those delivered right to your inbox as well. And don't forget, 10% of all of our Patreon earnings are going to help donors see with their battle, helping people all around the world, especially the third world, who are affected by everything going on with coronavirus, so join on up, get a free t-shirt, and help a great cause at the same time. Check it all out at patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here's your host,
1: your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Claire.
0: My guest today is a professor of economics at George Mason University and the author of four books, including his latest, Open Borders, The Science and Ethics of Immigration. I'm very pleased to welcome Professor Brian Kaplan. Brian, are you ready to roar? Roar! All right. Now, uh, Brian, I really want to get into this issue. This is an issue I've, I've really become passionate about over the years, uh, this issue of immigration and borders. Uh, but first, I want to get to know a little bit more about you. So I'm, I'm kind of curious, how did you first take interest in uh, free market economics, libertarian ideas, everything that you write so passionately about?
1: It started with Atlas Shrugged in 11th grade, actually. So when I was in 11th grade, my best friend gave me a copy of Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged and had me read Francisco Anconio's Speech on Money. And I kind of like that.
0: It's a long one.
1: Yeah. yeah. Well, that's one of the short ones, actually. I I guess um, it's all
0: relative in that book.
1: But then actually the few days of the summer, right before 12th grade, I actually did read it and I read it in about three days in a stereotypical teenage obsessive sleep deprived state. (laughs) And after I read it, it seemed very interesting and inspiring. But then there's a question of, is this at all realistic? Can this be done anywhere in the modern world? And so that's when I started studying economics to find out whether what she was saying was completely crazy or not. Hmm. And I'll say that the more I read, the more I said, well, I guess she's not completely crazy, actually. There's a lot of good points here. There's a lot of arguments that I never heard that seem very solid. Uh, So initially, I spent a lot of time reading Austrian economics and uh, other free market economists, libertarian economists. So getting what you could say was a very biased perspective, but... When I became a student at UC Berkeley, then I learned mainstream economics and saw a lot of value in that too, and tried to reconcile those. And then I would say that in grad school, but especially once I became a professor, I got much more interested in psychology and sociology, but especially the psychology, and realizing it's actually hard to understand much about social science unless you also know a lot about the human mind and the way that human beings think and feel. And if you look at my books, I would say all of them have a very heavy infusion of not just free market economics and mainstream economics, but also psychology and really just interdisciplinary social science. Uh, And that's really where I end up coming from now.
0: Well, that's really interesting. It was. It was, seems it was the philosophy and sort of the creative approach taken by Ayn Rand that led you to have interest in the ideas, and that that led you to really just focus on, okay, now, can this thing that I think seems so cool, so interesting, so fascinating, can this actually work in real life? So that, that led you directly to this sort of economic side. I'm curious, did that, did your own experience lead to, you know, the reasoning behind doing this book? This book is sort of a, a graphic novel. It's in graphic novel form. Are it, you trying to approach it in the similar way, way where you hope to sort of capture the imaginations of people, but then at the same time, as you do in the book, sort of break down the economic reasoning behind it.
1: Yeah. So you could definitely say that. I mean, I'd say in all my books, I'm trying to actually get people to read the book.
0: Right. So That's always step one.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, so, I mean, I'll, what I'll say is for a professor, I do a good job of that, but professors are terrible at getting people to read their <laughs> work. So you could be a fantastic professor and still be pretty mediocre. Right. Uh, for this last book, since it is a nonfiction graphic novel, I was trying to do something different, do something to... First of all, just convey a lot more information in a short amount of time. Mm-hmm. So I had seen other similar books, uh, you know, such as the Cartoon History of the Universe series, and said, wow, this is a great way to just give a much more intense dose of information per minute, and at the same time, to make it much more fun so that people actually keep reading. So basically, you multiply a lot more information per minute times a lot more minutes of people's time because they're enjoying themselves. So I would say that, you know, like Ayn Rand, I am trying to really engage readers and inspire people, although, very different from her is I'm trying to really incorporate research very heavily into the book. And in particular, unlike her, I don't just give you a bunch of references to books that already agree with her, which, uh, you know, like she has great reading lists, but all the books that she cites basically agree with her. And that's not the way that you figure out how the world works is by reading a bunch of things that tell you what you want to hear. So you know, when I write books, I make a very stoic effort to just read a very wide variety of views on this and to find out you know, what does anyone of any note have to say about this topic? And yes, of course, I normally end up thinking that my approach is the better approach, but at the same time, this lets me just do a much better job. And also, I mean, I'll say, like, you know, anytime I've worked on a book, I've learned some uncomfortable facts that are just hard to reconcile with my overall view, and Then I'll say, okay, well, I guess I have to change the view then. What I said wasn't really true and I've got to at least modify it somewhat in order to be honest.
0: I think that's such an important quality that I think uh – whether it's libertarians or people of any uh, you know, philosophical bench should uh, sort of take that approach to things. Always, You always have to be open to challenging your views. We all got to our views from a certain direction, so at some point we were open to changing yeah. them from what they were, uh, and we need to always be open to challenging ourselves because either we're going to find out, oh yeah, this thing I believe was right, or we might find out, okay, maybe I was wrong at this issue, maybe I was looking at things in a different way. And, and, and borders, the issues of borders and immigration is one area where uh, there's a lot of division among libertarians, and I think uh, regardless of the views people come out with, I think everybody could do 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 really well to look at the, you know, sort of steel man the views of, of each side of things and really try to look at the best arguments uh, going both ways. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. And uh, I'm kind of curious, how did you get so passionate about this issue of immigration specifically?
1: Right. So I would say I, it first came on my radar when I was learning basic economics and the economics of free trade and then there's a the question, what about immigration? And then the economist I read said, so, well, immigration is a street trade and labor. So if you think free trade is a good idea, you should think immigration, the open immigration is a good idea. And I said, yeah, it makes great sense. And then I moved on and didn't worry about it much anymore. It's only when I started blogging that I did more and I started reading more recent research on just how big the losses of different kinds of trade barriers are. And the main message of this research is that We have already greatly reduced regulation of trade and goods. And so actually the harm of the remaining regulation is very modest. On the other hand, the regulation of labor and international flows of labor remains extremely draconian. And then when economists measured how much is the harm of this, they came away with an astronomical number. It's basically, think about it this way. You let one more Haitian into the United States, it's very normal that his income multiplies by a factor of 10. Or twenty, right? And economically, the reason this is happening is because that Haitian is producing ten or twenty times as much stuff in the United States as he is in Haiti. And the whole point of the laws is to stop this. So when you think about all the people that want to come, and by most counts, that's hundreds of millions or billions of people want to come, times the typical gain per person of multiplying their contribution to the world by ten tenfold, say, you come up with an enormous number. And really, what you come away with is immigration restrictions are by far the most harmful regulations on the planet in terms of how much they impoverish mankind and how much progress they are stopping.
0: Where does this sort of economic fear of immigrants come from i mean this always was sort of known we're brought up even even in school today or maybe not today but when i when i was a kid we were still taught of how we were a nation of immigrants we learned about ellis island how we pretty much let everybody in and uh, let them sort of build their own life when did this nation sort of take a a turn to the point where it uh, this sort of fear of whether it's economic or otherwise that immigrants coming in from might actually be a bad thing that we need to start looking at how how can we restrict these numbers
1: yeah, so there was a lot of complaining about immigrants during the entire history of the United States. So you, know, so you may have heard about anti, you know, anti-Irish movement and so on. Right. Uh, of course, you know, movement against Chinese immigrants, Japanese, Japanese immigrants. But the crucial events were in 1921 and 1924. So 1921 imposed temporary quotas on immigration, and 1924 made them permanent and much lower, and also based them upon an earlier census. If you look at what people were saying at the time – it's quite clear. People were i to say politicians were more honest than those days, or at least they are more, more honest about things that we would not be honest about today. So normally what proponents of immigration restrictions at the time said right on the congressional record is, this is a Nordic country, other peoples are inferior, and if we let them in, they're going to ruin our country. Right. So... You know, you know, like, you know, around the, you know, like, like people like when I was taught the history of immigration, I was given the idea, well, the country was, was full by then. And so then they had to go and limit it. So basically immigration was good when the country was frontier, but then bad afterwards. But that's really not an important part of what the, of the actual arguments that change people's minds. The actual arguments change people's minds were, we right now we're letting in a whole bunch of Southern and Eastern Europeans and Jews and Italians and Greeks. And these people are terrible. So let's keep them out and we'll save our country. Right now, this does not mean that people are supporting these re- the regulations out of racism today, although maybe, but it does mean that the reason they were put on the books was this very peculiar kind of racism that we barely even hear about today, which is this intra-white racism of the Nordic whites are far superior to the non-Nordic whites. Right now, of course, there are always just complaints about immigrants are causing unemployment, that kind of thing. But you know, the reason why went on the books was this idea of these are inferior peoples and we need to keep them out.
0: When you discuss open borders, uh, what actually do you mean when you personally advocate for this? Are, are you talking about, because uh, a lot of people will say open borders, well, you can't even have a nation if you have open borders. So are you talking about a situation where we would have no borders at all or where we go back to sort of an Ellis Island model? What? Well, how would you really define open borders in you know, the sense of which you speak of it?
1: So in general, when I write, all my books are controversial, and when I write a controversial book, I try to only sell people on the one controversial idea in the book. Mm -hmm. So I don't try to simultaneously convince everyone of all these weird things that I believe, which I think I would just seem like a kook if I did that. Uh, So when I say open borders, yeah, it basically just means going back to the Ellis Island model where – Anyone on Earth is free, is free to live and work in any country where they want. So you could say it's the universal Ellis Island model where it's not just the United States doing it, it's all countries. Although, of course, you'd expect that most of the immigrant flows are going to go from poor countries to rich countries. It's not just that. It's also going to be based upon proximity and language. But ultimately, you know, the economic factor is the overwhelming one for, for most purposes. So yeah, it's just one where the border still exists. You know, like you still have all of the things you're used to, but the default, the strong default, is that anyone can come in. You know, of course, if they're a murderer on the run, then they get, then you find that and they go to jail. So it's, uh, but of course, you could say you know, in that sense we don't have open borders. You know, for people that are in the U.S. jails right now, so I would again just say that's just a separate issue. But you know, you know sort of like the way that I picture it is if movement is justice free for citizens as for non-citizens that's what I think of as open borders
0: what are some of the biggest myths out there that the you know about immigrants that the common person who might be not even necessarily for closed borders or immigration restrictions but someone whos just expresses concerns about the issues of immigration what do you think are the biggest myths that they that are that are widely believed I, I suppose that are just completely un- untrue
1: right so probably the biggest one is that It's not so much a myth as something that people are just oblivious to, and that is when a person moves from a place where they're paid very little to a place where they're paid very much, the production of mankind increases. So normally people have a zero sum view that when someone moves from Haiti to the U.S., they go and they take a job, and there's no gain to the world. And I said, look, that's completely wrong. The American that is displaced will find another job someplace else with will over the medium run with near certainty, and the Haitian then goes from contributing almost nothing to the world to contributing a lot. Right, you know, I tell people this is just like you know, women entering the U.S. workforce. This doesn't mean that you know, American men can no longer find a job. It just means that women who previously would have not been able to go and or would not have been selling their talents to the world are, and what they produce then you know is not only allows them to draw an income and to have a better life, but it also is good for all their customers. Uh, so in terms of you know, like actual wrong things people think, probably the worst one is the idea that you don't want to let in low-skilled immigrants, that you want to let in people who are at least as good as the average of your country or better. So it's the idea you know, like high-skilled immigrants good, low-skilled immigrants bad. And again, I say you know, this is just completely wrong because, you know, key point, People with low skills are still useful people, right? right? If the janitor at your, at your business dies, it, it would not make sense to say, hooray, no way, this person no longer burdens us. Then, well, wait a second. Like he, was the, he did a job. He produced something useful. He let. he
0: wouldn't be doing jobs. it and getting paid if we didn't need him yeah. to do it.
1: <laughs> yeah. So when someone says that a person making $30,000 a year is, is a useless person, that's what I say. That is crazy. That is a great thing to be.
0: And that person might be their their profession might be looked down upon here or even their salary. uh, But to the person who's trying to come here for an opportunity, that's a rich person's salary. I mean, if they can take their even minimal amount of skill and apply it to a job like being a janitor, that is a, a huge gain for them and a huge gain to the economy, having someone someone working and filling a job that we do need done.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, of course, you say wouldn't it wouldn't be better to have Albert Einstein, and I'd say, "Sure, it's better to have Albert Einstein." But we don't have to only have Albert Einstein. We can have Albert Einstein plus a thousand janitors. We can do both. And the idea that low-skilled people are worthless people, or not, or like that somehow there's a problem with them, uh, you know, is like, you know, completely wrong. So, you know, like in my book, I call this the arithmetic fallacy. I have this example where imagine you've got a big, you know, professional basketball team. You know, they're all like average height, of six foot ten with average height six foot ten, and then you let a bunch of toddlers onto the court. The average height on the court has just dramatically fallen, but this does not shrink the basketball players. Right. All that it means is that you have changed both – you know, you, you know, you've, you know, you've, you've changed the denominator. you change changed the, the gr- group that you're sampling over. And so it, gives, it can give you this illusion that there's, been, that there's a problem, but the point is like the, you know, no one has shrunk as a result of letting those toddlers onto the basketball court. And then, if you've got fruitful cooperation, then great, right? And you can see this in places like the Gulf monarchies, where they let in tons of low-skilled workers, who then go and produce useful, low-skilled goods that people actually want and use and improve their standard of living. And of course, the immigrants themselves get a great deal you know, get a great deal in the process. Yeah. So, and then you know, there's a bunch of other ones. You know, there's the myth that immigrants are committing a lot of crime. At least in the U.S., they have lower crime rates than natives. Um, there's the myth that immigrants are just champing at the bit to go and vote for socialism, <laughs> right? And you know, like the actual evidence is immigrants barely want to vote at all, right? They're just not, they're just, they're very apolitical. Understandably, they show up in a new country, influencing the politics of the country is way down their list of priorities, much more interested in getting a job. And
0: I always find that one to be the most like ridiculous objection to me because I, the idea that people are huddling uh, you know, in a, in a, in a third world nation that, that don't, that are, are struggling to eat just want opportunity are sitting there plotting oh, If only we could go to the United States and vote and c- vote for Democrats enough and increase that welfare state. Now that's, that's how we're going to really succeed. I mean, it's, it's really an absurd thing when you think about the reality of it.
1: Yeah. I you mean, know, so, I mean, I, the book, I do say there is evidence uh, that, that, uh, that, for- that in the United States, foreigners are, more socially conservative and more economically liberal than natives, which is what I think a libertarian sphere. The main thing though, is when you measure it, it's a modest difference, mm-hmm. right? And when you multiply that by the low probability that they vote anyway, and also just look at assimilation, their kids generally assimilate to American norms, not the norms of their parents. Um, yeah. So yeah, I guess like another you know, big myth is the idea that you know, people that, you know, I guess it's, well, let me put it this way. So I've had a bunch of critics saying, you know, Brian's an idiot. He believes in magic dirt. He thinks that if some, as soon as some Venezuelan socialist touches the ground of the U.S., this transforms him and he goes from being you know, like a, you know, an, urban, an urban socialist criminal to being uh, like a libertarian investment banker. So, you know, look, look I, I never said that. Um, you know, what, you know, what I will say is two things. You know, first of all, even you know, like first-generation immigrants from very backwards and, and authoritarian nations, they assimilate enough to become productive members of society. And then, secondly, their kids assimilate almost totally, mm-hmm. right? So I say, you know, like critics of immigration, they tend to look at the slightest sign of non-assimilation and and then say, "See, it's not happening." And you know, like what, what I say in the book is, if you want to get the real story of, uh, of assimilation, ask an immigrant parent, see what they say. Like I've never met an immigrant parent who says. Oh, my kids haven't Americanized at all. Like, like they're way more interested in India or Bangladesh than they are in the country they grew up in. Instead, so it's always the opposite. Um, you know, they won't even they won't even speak my language. They aren't teaching my grandkids the language. They have no interest in anything about our culture. And yeah, like I brought them here for this opportunity, but I feel alienated from my kids. Um, now I remember my editor was saying, "Well, we don't want to say that because there's some people who'll be upset about this happening." And I said, "Look, this is what happens. So I'm just going to be honest." So. You know, some people's fears are unreasonable. The fear that people won't assimilate is unreasonable. On the other hand, if you're worried that they will assimilate, That's a real like, and you don't like that. That's a reasonable fear. That's backed up by the facts.
0: Yeah. I I actually remember when I was maybe eight years old, uh, one of my best friends who I used to play with all the time was Indian, which I didn't even think about until I went over to his house one day. I I mean, I knew he had different color skin than me, but didn't think twice about that kind of thing when I was eight years old. And I I remember going over to his house and and seeing all, that's when I really noticed that his family was so different than mine. Uh, When I went over to his house and saw all these, you know, sort of Indian artwork and just a completely different looking house than the one I lived in. But when he left that house, he came over to my house and we played Nintendo. We listened to the same music. He seemed when he interacted with me outside of that house to be, just as quote-unquote American in the cultural sense as I was. It's only, like you said, when you go to the parents, yeah, they haven't assimilated. They're the first generation. They're still practicing their culture. But I, even at that young age, you can tell that the child, he's he's becoming an American every single second in, in terms of the cultural sense of things. Hey there, Liberty Kitties. Time to take a quick time out to tell you about one of our longtime supporters. His name is Tyler Colford, and he goes by the pseudonym Crypto man. That's his rapping name. That's right. He is a rapper as well. He does some awesome stuff and he recently produced a track called Free Ross. And the Ross in question is, of course, Ross Ulbricht, the creator of the Silk Road Marketplace, who was sentenced to two life sentences for creating that marketplace. Yes, it was a black market indeed of all sorts of things, including drugs, consensual transactions, which libertarians are completely in favor of. There were no victims and there were no crimes as far as. Concerned, so please do check out the track Free Ross. It was just released on Friday, March 27th, the 35th birthday of Ross Ulbricht, and 100% of the proceeds will go to the Free Ross Foundation which is uh, helping to free Ross and bring more awareness to his situation. Do check out the links. I will put them all over at lionsofliberty.com slash free Ross for ease of use. You can also pre-order it on Google Play. Again, 100% of the proceeds of this track will be going to help free Ross.
1: And, um...
0: Another thing I want to talk about is uh, I want to go back. You mentioned it briefly, but the the crime issue that is something you hear a lot about that uh, Im- immigrants bring more crime, that uh, poverty brings more crime. W- why do these myths hold? And and what are some of the you know are there any numbers you can toss out there to us about uh, crime and immigration that we can kind of dispel some of these that myth with?
1: Yeah. So why do why do the myths hold? I think it's because there are some immigrants who commit crimes, and you find the most dramatic story. You find an immigrant who went and murdered a whole family of natives after moving next door. And even though you say, well, there's 330 million people in this country, there's just, it's just an endless list of horror, of horror stories, if that's the way that you view the world. Well, I mean, if if that's, the, if that's the way you're doing it, then of course you're going to wind up thinking that immigrants are terrible because you can find a few that have done terrible things. Once I actually was speaking at the biggest anti-immigration conference in the United States as a FOIL, and I wasn't there, but in the afternoon, there was going to be a panel of a bunch of people whose family members have been murdered by illegal immigrants. All right, And what do you say about that? It's like, well, I mean, logically the answer is, well, you could just as well have a panel about people murdered by Jews or Albanians or right, people right. with detached earlobes. It wouldn't be a reasonable, a reasonable basis for persecuting the entire group. But, you know, I wouldn't want to be on that panel because like, there's just no way to not sound like, like, like a jerk when you say, look, I know understand what happened to you but we shouldn't do anything about it other than punish guilty people that's it right now in terms of the data so uh, this is one where you know, like you know some of the data isn't good so in the book I tried to track down the highest quality US data that I can find and I think the overall result is that immigrants have about two thirds of the crime rate of natives.
0: By, by that logic, I mean, by the logic of people that worry about crime, you'd want to bring in more immigrants as, as, much, as much as possible yeah, yeah, and true, m- true. maybe sure. deport some of the Americans since we seem to be committing more crimes.
1: Yeah. 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 That's a fun, fun debater's point. <laughs> right. uh, it probably is true that in Europe, this, uh, the, the, the reverse is true. And I think the explanation is pretty simple, which is that native born Americans have very high crime rates. Hmm. So immigrants are better than us. On the other hand, Europeans have really Native Europeans have really low crime rates, and therefore immigrants are worse than them, right? And, you know, the main thing I tell Europeans is, look, you guys are, have such low crime, someone could have 50% higher crime rate than you, and it's still not much crime, right? I mean, I know, again, I know it doesn't sound very good to someone who's been a victim, but, you know you shouldn't go and rely upon the most traumatized people in your society for deciding how the world ought
0: to work. Another objection I hear a lot of is, is that immigrants add to the welfare state. That This seems to be, I mean, especially people will point out to certain states like here in California, uh, where hospitals and emergency rooms are required to give you know medical care, full medical care to anybody who comes in, regardless of immigration status.
1: Yeah, it's all U.S. states, federally.
0: Is that, okay, yeah. I mean, that, that's one of the big things you'll hear that they continue to burden burden whatever systems we may have in place that help people, whether it's uh, welfare, or whether it's getting medical services. So so what's your response to that objection?
1: Right. So I'd say that you've really got to look at the numbers here. So if you had a welfare state where one immigrant out of a million was getting benefits, would that be a problem? Uh, Not much. How about one out of 100,000? Not much. One out of 10,000? No, one out of 1,000. So anyway, you've got to really actually crunch the numbers here. So what... The highest quality researchers do is they try to measure what's called the, the the net present you know the net present value of an immigrant's fiscal impact. Basically, what this means is you're trying to get a proper financial measure of all the taxes the immigrant will ever pay, minus the cost of all the services they will ever use, and then also factor in their kids because their kids go to school even if they're citizens. But on the other hand, the kids eventually grow up and they pay taxes. So anyway, there's a a still fairly recent uh, high quality version of this done by the National Academy of Sciences in the us and the punchline of this is that first of all the average immigrant we in now is a net fiscal positive that means that when you act, when you do the math properly they pay more than like they ultimately pay a higher value of taxes than if than they spend it in the cost of services and then furthermore if you go and break it down by education level and age you know, even low skilled immigrants are a good deal for us taxpayers as long as they're young so basically, we're talking about just low-skilled elderly immigrants being a burden on, ta- on U.S. taxpayers, and that's, that that uh, looks like it does check out. Um, now, this is the kind of thing where it's so quantitative; it's very hard to believe someone telling you what the research says unless you already trust them, right? Mm-hmm. So, but you know, like, so what I usually do here is say, "Look, all right." I mean, you're not, yelling. if you don't, if you're, if you're don't really trust me, you're not going to believe what I'm saying, but let me just tell you a few things that will make what I'm saying seem not crazy, right? So one of them is just remember that a lot of government spending is what economists call non-rival. That means that the cost of the service does not depend on the number of people using it. So like whatever your views on foreign policy, if we had a big baby boom. It wouldn't make sense to say we now we need more nuclear weapons, right? Whatever your views on foreign policy are, we could defend 10 million new babies just as well as what we've got. And the same goes for not all, but many government services where the cost really has little or nothing to do with population. And so for those, letting in immigrants is a clear gain. It's like letting in someone for a discounted price when you're running a movie theater. Look, the theater was almost empty anyway, so even if you only get two bucks off of the extra person, it's two free bucks, right? And the other thing to remember is that most of the welfare states focused on the old rather than the poor, and most immigrants are young, Not are, are young, so that's another reason why the actual fiscal burden is much more favorable to natives than it seems. I Again, mean, It's tempting to say, well, eventually the immigrants will be old, and then, then they will go and be a big burden on us, but a yeah, fundamental principle of finance is a debt delayed is a cheaper debt. You really can save money by kicking the can down the road if, as long as the can does not grow in size. Right, And then finally, from the point of view of natives, another reason that, that immigrants are a good deal is that for a family of three natives, the public school system typically educates both the parents and the kid. For a family of immigrants, the public school system educates the kid, but not the parent. And therefore, you are getting a much better deal. You're basically instantly fast-forwarding to two taxpayers Whereas for native-born, then taxpayers are on the hook for all of it. Yeah,
0: hey, you're getting an instant discount by not having to pay for, for the, uh, the yep. adult school, I guess, coming in. One thing I want to address that you'll often hear in this discussion, um, look, we don't have a problem with immigrants. We just want people to do it legally. Uh, and I don't think it's, it's really hard to drive home to people how difficult it is to immigrate to the United States, no matter what country you're from. I mean, I recently interviewed a guy named Michael Cheney. Uh, he's a millionaire, businessman, uh, entrepreneur in the UK. He gave up on trying to immigrate to the US. I mean, so even for someone with a high economic status that runs their own business, has every should be the quote unquote type of person you would want to attract if, if you have that sort of view of things even. It was just too difficult for him to come over. So maybe you could break down um, just some of the why it is so, so difficult to actually become a legal immigrant to the point that the concept is almost meaningless.
1: So I would begin by just asking people, how many people do you think would come to the U.S. if anyone could do it for no? if if everyone could do it legally, if all you needed to do was to present a passport at the border and walk in. Right. And when you put it this way, almost everyone says, "Yeah, yeah, it'd be a crazy number. So you say, all right, well, what are immigration laws doing? They're keeping out all those people, right? Or another thing I like to say is, you know, ask them, do you know how much you have to pay a smuggler to get in from different countries? Do you know how poor the people in these countries are? Why would you go and pay $75,000 to be smuggled from Pakistan to the U.S. unless there were very strict regulation making it very hard to come in? So, I mean, I mean this is one where, you know, like when I've debated Mark Okorian, who's head of the Center for Immigration Studies, probably the most influential anti-immigration think tank in the world. And he loves to say, oh, we've had open borders policies for 30 years. And yet several times in public, I've said, Mark, you don't really think we have open borders policies already. You know how many more would come if, you know, if people listen to me. And I've actually gone in public to say, yeah, yeah, of course, of course. Obviously we've had nothing like open borders. Right. <laughs> and then the next time I talk to him, he's back to saying the wrong thing again. But still for that shining moment, he is accurate because he's a smart guy and he realizes that what he's been saying is crazy. It's just not true that we have anything remotely like open borders.
0: I mean, for, for many people around the world, it's hard to come here even to visit, even just to legally worst, be, worst. be just to be a tourist. I mean, that, that process is so difficult, let alone trying to actually become here and work or anything. Like that. You know,
1: the whole principle of getting a U.S. tourist visa is prove to us that you won't want to stay. Mm hmm. Right. We assume you want exactly. to stay unless you prove to us that you don't want to stay.
0: Yeah. You sort of have right? to prove mentality of that.
1: That would be the worst thing in the world. If a person stayed. No, you don't want, nobody wants that.
0: Yeah. To, to become a tourist, even you have to sort of prove in advance, uh, that you're not going to commit the future quote unquote crime of, of staying in this place that we, we might yeah. let you come visit if we, you know, if we decide, decide you're worthy. One more thing I want to kind of look look into a little bit with you. Obviously, it's hard to avoid uh, what's going on around the world right now uh, with coronavirus. And a, a lot of the responses of, of governments that you're seeing are to close things down. I know, like, the U.S. and Canada have closed borders to an extent. They're obviously allowing certain trade. Uh, same thing with the U.S. and Mexico. That border has been closed. Again, they're allowing essential services and whatever they deem that to be. Uh, I'm curious if you could just speak on this topic of um, – diseases and pandemics as you know a, a reason for closing borders do you see any uh, sort of economic de- deleterious effects of closing borders um in response to a virus i mean is, is it even a a a, a, a a a is it even a, a solution that could even i don't know if that's even something that could really stop a virus closing quote-unquote closing a border but what are some of the economic ramifications of even just closing the border to whatever they deem to be non-essential travel even if that's just basic tourism visiting family and friends and that sort of thing right that's so, a big topic more than just a more yeah. than a direct question, but I'm just curious about your thoughts on, on that.
1: So first thing to notice is you know, once you realize how closed our borders already are, which I think, I think it'd be fair to say they're 98% closed as they mm-hmm. are, and you still see the virus had no trouble spreading to almost every country on Earth. Right. This is where you realize that to go and say open borders would lead to the spread of viruses. Well, wait a second. Like if when 98% closed led, led it to spread almost everywhere on Earth, then open borders, what, what further difference would it make? So the case where you can say, listen, if you want 100% closed borders, which, by the way, would require not only that you don't let anyone from the outside in, it would require that you don't let anyone from your country ever leave and return. So it's not just a matter of keeping foreigners out. You have to keep your insiders in or at least say you can leave once and then you can never come back. So that is the level of draconian regulation of borders that would genuinely be required in order to... Make a dent and to actually make a difference. So we've already seen you can have very strictly regulated borders and still viruses have very little trouble actually actually coming. Now, uh, to be clear, in the, you know, in the book, in the very first chapter, I say, look, I'm not an absolutist. I'm not a Rothbardian saying I don't care if the world collapses as long as we stick to as we hew strictly to libertarian principles. What I do say is that libertarian principles are default and the burden of proof should be on those who want to bend those principles to say that there's going to be some enormous gain from this. And again, that's where I say, you know, I don't see any sign of that. And now I could, I could understand the argument if you were to say that, you know, like back in like, like January, say, look, there's this terrible virus that's going to come out from China and we're going to shut the border down completely right now with China. And that will then go and save us. Right. So, you know, if that were really, really true, then I think that would have been a reasonable thing to do. Again, of course. When you think about it more, it's like, well, you can't just do it with
0: China. You have to do it against anyone who's come from China or gone to China. Sure. I and know. so that, now we're talking about almost everywhere because there's a lot of people in China and a lot of them leave yes. the country. So right. And then, and then here's the thing. You know, like the
1: U.S. had closed, closed down the border to the whole world. Then even so, then this question, right? So what about when you are? Are you ever going to reopen? Mm-hmm. Right. And I say the cost of never reopening is astronomical. So I would say that while you know, in principle I am not opposed to bending libertarian principles in extreme situations, but I don't see that this is helpful. And, and then finally, of course, right now, the point of closing the border between the U.S. and Canada, I cannot imagine what that's really supposed to be. Look, the virus is, like, is already rampant in both countries, so you're not spreading contagion an anymore, mm-hmm. right? So, like, the most you could be doing would be, you know, like the same thing you'd accomplish by closing state borders inside of the U.S., where maybe you slow it down ever so slightly. But, again, I would say that's the point when, you are bending the principle for, for for the flimsiest reasons. And one thing I do not cotton to is bending principles for flimsy reasons. Right,
0: right. Yeah, and when you mentioned the state borders there, it seems to apply to any time people argue for border restrictions of a nation. I mean, why aren't we making the same exact arguments for borders between states, borders yeah. between maybe some states have more crime or less crime? Maybe some states have different cultures. Do we Are we worried about the culture of uh, Alabama seeping yeah. its way into Northern California? I mean, these these are things that work themselves out on their own. And when you look at it from the, the state borders point of view, it, it quickly breaks down the national borders point of view, because yeah. to me, they're, they're, there's no real difference. If we're talking about magic dirt, I mean, what's the difference? Indeed. All right, Brian. Well, I do really appreciate you uh, coming on the show today and breaking down this issue a bit for us. Uh, it's one It's one of those things that I'm not sure if libertarians are ever going to agree on. Probably not. But uh, the best we can do is put the arguments out there. So uh, before I let you go, please just take a second to break down uh, where people can find this book and uh, how they can find more about their work, how, how they are more of your work and how they can uh, reach out to you.
1: Yeah, by the way, what's frustrating is I can actually remember a time when almost all libertarians were in favor of open borders. So, you know, like like in the, in, in the, in the 80s, early 90s, you know, like you know, libertarians who were opposed to uh, post-immigration were very few and far between. You know, I, I
0: always took it as the logical you know, the yeah. logical point of, of the philosophy, but uh, only in, the, in recent years have I seen more and more people that, that seem to disagree. So uh, I think it is something we yes. need to keep pressing on, I guess.
1: Right. You know, well, I mean, it's, all, it's one where – say, look, if you are going to support national government saying that other human beings cannot live and work in your country without government permission – Right. And you know, like this is not just like some minor thing about compromising on raw milk or something like right. that. This <laughs> is a very fundamental principle that has you know, and, it's, and it's one where the harm that you are doing to the people that are affected by the regulation is enormous. Right? So it's not just a trivial thing. It is an enormous harm with horrible costs. And, and really, what I say my book is for you know, the, like the, the flimsiest reasons again. So again, you know, I'm not an absolutist saying it should never be done, but I am someone saying it should be done only after very serious thought and investigation. And I say, when you do that serious thought and investigation, you come away with a very pro-immigration view. Uh, so, you know, you know, much more favorable to banning Satanism than banning immigration. <laughs> that's like what the great social gains of Satanism are. less right. clear. Uh, but... Anyway, so, you know, the, you know, so these days, especially I just say, you know, just get the book on online. Amazon is, uh, has a great price, 1339. And, you know, this is a book by the way, that while, I mean, I wrote it for adults, but I also wrote it so that precocious kids would, would like it too. And I know a lot of kids yeah. read it and I'm really happy about that because you know, I broadened my audience, you know, all of my other books, you know, this is the only book where my five-year-old was ever looking over my shoulder reading it while I was writing it. So I I felt like I, I knew I had actually cracked into a new audience when that happened.
0: Yeah, I think that's something great about the the uh, graphic novel format it kind of makes it more accessible in so many ways and first of all it just makes it less intimidating than say some you know 500 page just words only tome might be to some people where they see a graphic novel and it doesn't make it dumbed down it just makes it easier to get through you know you see pictures um, you're, you're telling stories it's just it's a different type of storytelling format and uh, you know it's the kind of book that like I could see myself handing I have an eight-year-old nephew I could see him him reading that and not having a problem really understanding the basic concepts uh, like I said it's not dumbed down, but it's it's definitely readable for people at a younger age yeah i mean
1: like i said so i mean i think you get a lot more information per minute of reading because a picture really is worth a thousand words if you choose the picture well and it's a lot more entertaining than a regular book it's definitely my my funnest book i've ever written and i always try to make things fun but you know this book i i'm I'm willing to say look it's it's not just fun for a book (laughs) it's fun So hope people check it out.
0: And again, the book is Open Borders, the Science and Ethics of Immigration. We'll also post a link to it over in today's show notes. Professor Brian Kaplan, thank you so much for joining me today on Lions of Liberty. Appreciate all the work you're doing out there. Keep up the great work. Keep on roaring.
1: Well, my pleasure. And just let me mention one other thing. So I, 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 we, we actually never mentioned the name of my co-author, the illustrator. Ah, yes. That's yeah. very
0: important. We should, we should So a
1: he's a uh, you know, really famous guy. He is the one who draws the daily webcomic Saturday morning breakfast cereal. If you don't know the name, you still quite possibly know the style of art. So if you look at the book cover and you say, hey, isn't that drawn by that guy? And the answer is yes, it's drawn by that guy.
0: I did find myself thinking that I couldn't pinpoint it, but it, it, it seemed like a very familiar art, art, artistic style.
1: Yeah. All right. So yeah, great, great, talking to you. It's been a lot of fun.
0: Thanks, Brian. appreciate it.
1: Take care. All right. Okay. Awesome.
0: <laughs> All right, Liberty kitty cats. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with professor Brian Kaplan. And our discussion about open borders. It's certainly a topic that not all libertarians agree on. Myself and Brian McWilliams actually had a little debate on that very topic that we did a live stream on for the Lions of Liberty Pride a couple months ago. Don't forget, you can join the Pride by heading over to patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. Get access to all sorts of exclusive bonus audio content like Conspiracy Corner, like Degenerate Gamblers. Uh, You get a first look at all the live streams that I've been doing uh, over these lockdowns here. So be sure to check that out. And again, anybody who joins at $15 or higher per month will receive a free Tigers of Liberty t-shirt, that's in addition to the free taxation as death mug. So even if you stick around for one month, you've already made money on just those two products alone, let alone the fact that you get to support your favorite libertarian podcast, let alone the fact that you also get to support Donor C and their efforts to help people being affected by coronavirus and by all the lockdowns and supply chain issues around the world. So there's just unlimited reasons to join the Lions of Liberty Pride. Be sure to check all of that out over on Patreon at patreon.com slash liberty. And don't forget, my friends, it's not just me here on the flagship show every single Monday bringing you compelling and interesting discussions like the one you heard today. We've also got Brian McWilliams slapping you in the face with his weekly shot of comedy, culture, and liberty. Again, if you missed his interview with Josh Dial, Joe Exotic's libertarian campaign manager, you got to check that thing out. Just click back a few weeks in that podcast feed uh, for his interview on Electric Liberty Land, Brian's weekly shot of comedy, culture, and liberty. While John Odie Odermat wraps things up with his incredible hard-hitting, and inspiring look at the broken criminal justice system every single Friday on Felony Friday. Uh, You really got to check out his interview from the other week where he had an inmate on uh, from a federal prison describing all the terrible conditions there and all the ways that that prison is really setting up... For a major outbreak of coronavirus should that virus get in there. I mean, the conditions there are just, just awful, and this is very common in America's prisons. Most people do not know about it, but it's very rare you get to hear from someone inside the prison at the time, and we can't even really tell you how John got that interview lined up, but you got to check it out. So click back in that feed. There's so much great content here. Three days a week. Sometimes we give you a little more over here in the Lions of Liberty podcast feed. And of course, for even more content, if you just can't get enough, head on over to Patreon, patreon.com slash lionsofliberty. Even if you don't sign up for Patreon, you got to check out this Tigers of Liberty t-shirt. Please do head over to lionsofliberty.store uh, to check that thing out because yeah, you, you just got to see it to believe it. <laughs> That's all I got to say, my friends. And until next time, I've got one last word to leave you with, and that is to encourage you all to please live long and live free.